let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. So, welcome to the Tandem Takeover of Fintech Insider. I'm Ricky Knox, founder of Tandem, and we're recording from our uh, glamorous HQ in King's Cross in London. I'm joined by Ruth Hancock, our Chief Customer Officer, most important person in the room, and uh, Nick Parrott, our Chief Product Officer, also very important. And uh, some familiar voices <laughs> from 11FS, <laughs> David Breer, Jason Bates, and Simon Taylor. Hello. Hello. Welcome, guys. Good intro. Yeah, that was that was good. <laughs> like one take. That was amazing. You know, like the amount of these we've been through. So. You know, if this bank thing doesn't work, out. <laughs> <laughs> guys, you got to tell us. Um, you know, this is uh, the key question. What is Tandem? Is it more than a bike? Is there something else going on here? And how did you pitch it to your investors? Like, tell us that story. Yeah, Tandem is a, is a lot more than a a lot more than a bank and. And indeed, you know, we sort of see where we are today, which is interesting. You know, we've got a whole lot of new competitors coming into the market. Inevitably, it's banking 1.1, you know, not banking 2.0 even, you know. uh, And when you've got a sort of first wave of disruption in any industry, you see people heading in like literally diametric different opposite directions. You've got Adam doing banks and fixed term savers, you know, uh, on your mobile phone. You've got uh, Tom and Monzo out there with prepaid cards, soon to turn into a current account. And, and we're, the way we're taking it is we're trying to sort of redefine what a bank does for a customer and uh, make turn banking into a service that fits around your life. Uh, now, that probably isn't granular enough to tell the listeners exactly, uh, exactly what we're up to, but, um, but hopefully we can explain more of that as we go further into the show. Pretty fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to hear more about it. But before we get there, you've got to tell me about this uh, this video on your website of a prank you pulled in a pub. Um, and I think it was uh, to prove a point that we accept treatment from our banks that we wouldn't stand in other areas of our lives. So what what sort of treatment is it, that? And it was the- amazing, by the way. That you was absolutely yeah, absolutely amazing. In terms of, and and it was it. it was so well sort of carried off as well. So yeah, t- tell us a bit more about it. Yes, there's all sorts of things that drive customers mad about their banks. It's the hold music. It's the Every single question you have needs a different person to answer it. It's that they never get back to you. It's they ask you to send a bunch of documents through the post. It's things that in every other industry has moved on. And banking, because it's really complicated, hasn't quite managed to catch up. So that was shining a light on some of the things that we think annoy customers every day. Actually, Tandem's going to solve some of those. Actually, we're hoping that they become hygiene factors. The rest of the industry needs to just catch up on that stuff really quickly. What we want to do is do something a bit more powerful on top. 
I mean, that's often a question I've heard, you know, that, that some banker in some conference somewhere will stand up and say, uh, but you'll never get rid of branches. There are complex financial products to sell and customers want to come and shout at someone. What's your view? Do you think banking will go digital or, or will there be a, a human aspect? And if so, where will that live? I think you look across industries and a human aspect doesn't need to be in person anymore. So you can deliver that human aspect. There'll always be a need for a human aspect in banking because it is really complicated. But you can deliver that over the phone. You can deliver it on Skype. You can deliver it in any number of ways that does not require a physical presence. Now, will they totally disappear? Who knows? I'm sure that as that business model becomes more niche, it'll probably become popular again as these things happen. But um, we don't think that's the only solution. I, I was actually, I mean, we do consulting work all over the place, but I was actually asked to talk at a branch transformation conference. Nice. Like a couple of, I think it was last month, two months ago. I'm standing up on stage in front of like 500 people whose job it is to, to do branches. And the person before me was talking about some coffee shop and the person after me was talking about, you know, pop-up shops and all kinds of ways of trying to recast that, that you know, branch experience. Do you think there are people in banking living in denial? I think there definitely are. I, 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 sat on, I was on stage with a CEO of Commerce Bank. It's actually a jolly nice chap. He was so nice that I felt sort of uh, bad being too rude. But, uh, but I, I, <laughs> I did say, and he basically, uh, you know, he was saying, well, you know, we've got customers who would, you know, who would never do without a branch. And I said, yes, and they'll be dead in 10 years. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> the audience quite liked it. But, but I mean, that, that is a bit... Um, a bit of an exaggeration. There will be people, you know, one of the, you know, certainties in life is that everyone's different. And, you know, one of the beautiful things about digital is we can start to serve and think about many more segments um, and, and, and how different people behave and serving them in the way that they want. Tandem's never going to be for people with branches. Uh, that's not our plan. Having said that, we even have sort of face-to-face events uh, for our co-founder community, and we may well have a place that people can come and see that we're real from a trust perspective. Uh, we'll never be handling cash in that location. But I, I think the um, uh, the uh, what you find, particularly where we are right now, we're definitely in the delusional phase of disruption, where there are some people sitting there with their eyes firmly closed saying Amazon doesn't exist and, and you know, digital disruption isn't happening and, and, and banks are immune. Uh, we're not quite sure why they had the inoculation, maybe at stage three, we don't know. But, uh, but yeah, you know, the... I definitely think um, the delusion can survive very much longer. But I guess, I mean, we if you go and talk to Barclays, they'll say, look, we've got 15 million customers. This is all very well for you guys. You know, starting up, picking off those, um, I'm sure they would cost it as millennials, although, you know, I'm sure we can get onto that. But we've got these 15 million customers and they need a variety of things. You know, they're not all digital. There's a, there's a digital shift coming, but... You know, actually, we have to offer omni-channel banking in some some respect. How long do you think that that digital shift is going to take, really, in order that we'll move from a period where you have to offer branches and phone and web and mobile towards a more digital experience, or, or will it ever happen? I think it might. I mean, I think it might take a while um, because changing any customer behaviour takes a generation, really. So if you look at um, the shifts that have happened across a bunch of different industries. I don't see anything to say that banking will be different. In many ways, it might be slower because money is really important to people where how you take photos and how you listen to music, important to loads of people, but sort of slightly less mission critical. I think it will take a while. I think there's also a bunch of political pressure on banks not to close um, branches, which is something that can't be ignored. And as a new bank, we're in some ways lucky that we're not subject to that 
Um, I think the other thing to say sort of about um, do bankers want to change? We've met over the last couple of years, obviously loads of people who work in big banks. It's not necessarily that every one of them is delusional or doesn't want to change. It's that turning a super tanker takes a long time. So there's a bunch of people who are thinking really proactively, but actually changing that in an organization of that scale with that many customers is tough. That's a really interesting point, right? So one of my pet peeves when working in a large bank was that innovation can't survive the death grip of committees like and and just that committee structure is 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 kind of like really hampering some people who want to do great things inside these organizations a lot of talented people a lot of great ideas coming out of those organizations but that committee structure really holds how have you guys organized yourselves culturally in a management team sense to really avoid that happening to you guys? If you've got a bit of startup culture, is that what is what have you done? Yeah. So I mean, the, it starts from from product, and you know, obviously, we're in a build build phase right now. We're agile and not just agile in our engineering teams, uh, you know, but actually right the way across, running cross functional teams that run across from marketing through to analytics, um, you know, so. They're sometimes somewhat larger than they would ideally be because they've got people from all over the place. And we try and uh, try and organize most of our getting shit done effort around around those agile teams. Now that's gonna need to change as we move into run mode. And there's a certain amount of uh, committees which are you're obliged to have. So for the PRA and FDA who are listening, we have those committees. <laughs> um, uh, we we do think that it's really important that you devolve decision-making, which is ultimately what Agile is about. And, uh, and even to the extent that we, you know, we stick, we still have an Exco, although we're thinking about renaming it, put those team members down into the Agile team. So they're actually just making the calls right there. Cause I, why else, you know, I mean, the idea that that would need to go up to a, to a, to a higher power to make that decision is, is a, is a pretty poor one. So how, how do you like uh, create that empowerment? Is there something where it's just culturally when you walk through the door, you just you let people know they can make decisions? Is there an observation of that decision being made? Is How have you kind of manifested that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that's about who you hire. Uh, first of all, and we were talking about it today, actually, one of Nick's team who uh, makes absolutely all these decisions. In fact, he would probably have built the whole bank by now if uh-huh. we left it to him. Uh-huh. And, you know, that was being lauded rather than crushed, uh, you know. And, yeah, that's had a few issues for us and a little bit of rework every now and then, you know, when uh, his team is headed off on four weeks of work and then we found out, uh, like, actually, that doesn't fit with one of the other teams and what they're doing. But, but you know, but on the flip side, it, that, that's much better to have it going that way than have everybody stuck in the mud waiting for uh, committee approval. Yeah, absolutely. So finding talent is like the question, I guess, right? So how have you, have you really done that? Is this just like you go to recruiters and say, I want some bankers? Have you recruited? <laughs> uh, we don't want any bankers. Or have you gone for like less traditional means? How have you, have you created that mix? Because you obviously need some of that banking skill set, yeah. right? But it, it can't be exclusively that. Can I mean, it? But if we look at, let's look at, let's see the panel here for a moment. What, what did you do, Nick, beforehand? So video games. And uh, what did you do, Ruth? Spirits. Uh, <laughs> Kind of fintech. Well, yeah. So we're not, basically, not if you if you don't if you don't yeah yeah if you're not a medium, you won't make it in. No, uh, no. So the short answer is, uh, you know, we have got some fantastic bankers, and I have to say, it's a piece of piss to recruit bankers as tandem and as any digital bank. We get absolutely the best. In fact, we're incredibly fussy because we need people who actually share our values, people who are willing to take a massive pay cut because actually to filter out the people who really really care about money. 
we make them take a massive pay cut. It's not actually about the fact, well, I don't seem to like that, but cost-based too, but, but actually it's more about the fact that the people who will accept that pay cut are the guys who probably have the right value set for us. So, I mean, there's, there's that piece. I think there are, there are other areas where it's harder to find talent. One of the things I've been really surprised about is we've got some incredible designers. We run a, a sort of human-centered designer, probably even a design-led culture. We're in a bit of a shift to engineering-led, actually, at the moment. Uh, but uh, but historically, we've been very design-led, quite a large number of designers and, and some very, very talented ones. And they actually really relish the uh, the challenge. I had a designer from Skype, you know, the, the, um, but coming from a whole lot of different areas to, to try and create and reinvent something and really having the freedom to, uh, to do that and really think about the intellectual challenge there. I think techies are probably, you know, engineers are actually the hardest. Um, and again, um, you know, we think we've been super lucky to have some really incredible engineers in our core team. Um, uh, but, um, but that's probably in London, the only area where we end up paying uh, as well as, you know, kids telling a lot of engineers you want to do it for the love and build a new bank for the love uh, is probably a little <laughs> bit know, harder. E- even on, you know, even on the engineering, I mean, the, like the guy who runs engineering, you know, used to run, you know, the I- iPlayer, uh, ITV, you know, ITV's mobile. Um, he did four on demand, ITV on demand, and uh, BBC's iPlayer. Wow. So, so he's so, a media guy. Yeah. Pretty yeah. good at scalable stuff, though, right? Yeah. Exactly. Scalable, high, current streams or something. High, high volume data. Exactly. There's also so, a bunch of network stuff here that actually people have brought great people with them. I think my yeah. personal favourite story was um, one of our very early recruits who. Um, Ricky was speaking at an event, I think it was a, a dinner. Ricky rocks up on his motorbike a bit late. Um, Doesn't sound like Ricky. Takes, <laughs> Ricky at all, takes off his motorbike helmet, delivers this sort of incredibly inspirational speech. And then Definitely. about three days, about three days later, this this guy emails me probably and says, "My mate was at this thing. Your founder spoke at it. I've got to come and work for you." And it's that kind of proactivity that if someone goes out of their way to do that, then you know they're going to be kind of in it and really throw themselves so, into it. So, so bike helmets are a good uh, way to recruit people, apparently. Totally, yeah. yeah. So exactly. I'm pretty shiny beacon. Yeah. Um, talk to me about tandem. I, I see that. Uh, uh, what does a good bank feel like is the first phrase on the on the website. What does a good bank feel like? Yeah, well, I mean, a good bank feels like a bank that actually has your back, that therefore is making decisions in your interest, much as uh, you know your doctor might or a good friend might. But I think how does that translate into product and really how do we build uh, banking that sort of fits seamlessly around your life pulls out all the hassle and answers, you know, the requirements you might have for borrowing or lending on an automated basis. And I mean, the first step in that is the owning and understanding the data surrounding your financial services life and relationship, and that's your transactions and, uh, and ideally your transactions and data from all of the institutions that you're in. So, you know, we're building really around a post-PSD2 world where all that data is more freely available. Don't worry, the banks will do their best to make it as crappily available as possible, but, but, but to it, you know, that it will be more available next year. And, and pulling that data together and, and forming that holistic picture of how the person's finances are evolving and what their financial needs are at any one time is a really key part of our proposition because 
and then to be able to customize and mold those products around that, uh, around those events, around those journeys, around that data stream uh, that you understand. And, um, and the, the really critical journey, which is taking a customer from a sort of semi-automated journey where you're talking them through stuff and we have, you know, an assistant built into our app who sort of, uh, there's a sort of conversational um, angle to, uh, to, to most of the early guidance that we take customers through, which we hope will eventually transform into a sort of a pure autopilot relationship. But obviously it's, it's you know, that's the, the tough role that design has is in building trust and bringing customers through those early journeys, which uh, for both the customer's reasons and our reasons in some cases aren't fully as automated as they could be to a place where actually that's completely automated around the customer. And, and, that's, and that's not a journey, you know, uh, I remember, you know, when we were starting Asimo, it was like the mapping out the, the tech team and um, the first map we did, we had a, you know, we had so we're looking some, it had some external resource and then we were gonna, and then we we're gonna level it off. And Mike and I were looking at it one another and going, that's never gonna happen. This tech team is gonna grow forever and ever and ever <laughs> and ever. And, and the truth is that, you know, that a modern tech business has to understand that, that your, your tech is never finished. Um, and indeed, you know, your MVP uh, may only be a, you know, a very short couple of steps into the journey and most of the journey lies out the other side. And I think that's fine and appropriate where we are in banking. It's come back to the question you asked Ruth. I mean, genuinely, I think we're 10 years away from, uh, from, from seeing real, you know, real transformation in banking. And sadly, one of the big reasons for that is that the capital requirements, et cetera, mean that you can't actually build a balance sheet that quickly uh, unless you go and farm it off on somebody else. So if you were to add up all of the regulatory business plans, the digital banking players, uh, you would probably have a laughably small number of customers in the year five, the projections. And, and even in year 10, wouldn't be all that exciting. Now, I'm not saying that we'll have exactly our regular projection, but uh, you know, the, the point is an important one, which is that if you were to grow at sort of actually IRR optimizing rates, you still would have less than 5% of the industry you know, with those digital banks in 10 years. Now, that may not be the way it pans out and people's strategies don't necessarily involve everything being on their own balance sheet, you know, Sterling and Monzo talking about in the current account and then other products being being off in someone else's balance sheet. You know, there are tandem will have both its own products on and other people's products off balance sheet. So I mean I think there's um, there's definitely capacity for that to happen a lot quicker, but it's an interesting exercise. You can run it on a spreadsheet and see what the, you know, mm. if you if presuming you have logical investors that therefore require some returns at some point in the future, um, there you when you grow too quickly, you decrease IRR in, uh, in in a banking scenario. So there is a sort of optimum size if all the op- if all the digital banks maximize were maximizing IRR for their investors, which I'm not saying they will. Uh, but it were they, uh, there'd be a number of customers that we'd have in digital banks in 10 years. So not, from all of this really happens overnight, does it? You've got to take, you know, governments and regulators and, and educate the customer as well. You know, the idea of automatic banking doesn't happen automatically, ironically. Um, so like that onboarding and education process, you know, the, the trust that you're trying to build with that customer base, that seems like the most significant piece really in terms yeah. of how you're, yeah. how you're changing trust. through. Trust how is how do you manifest that? You know, you said about uh, earlier on actually about the idea of the lack of humanity in, in banking. So how are you bringing that warmth, that humanity to, to the tandem experience? Yeah, I mean, trust is the tough thing in banking because the thing you find out when you get a banking license 
is what comes with a banking license is I trust you're not going to lose all my money, which is pretty important and, and is the sort of fundamental base of banking. It's pretty low bar though, isn't it? It's pretty, it's pretty low bar. <laughs> Don't run off with all my money and exactly. uh, you've met my entry-level yeah, expectations. Exactly, which is what um, most banks are doing at the moment. What you don't get, um, particularly since financial crisis, is I trust that you're going to do the right thing by me. I do not trust that you're going to keep me on the right rate. I don't trust that as soon as I turn my back, I'm going to realise I'm on a negative interest rate. So that's the bit that will take any challenger bank a while to build because people are coming at this with a whole bunch of scepticism, just as they should, because they've seen 0% offers that change over time. They've seen terrible interest rates that go down. They've seen fees that they don't really get why they've been charged and why that's an appropriate amount of money. So what does a good bank feel like? It's it's unpicking some of those practices that have become endemic in um, retail banking that just don't work for the customer. I think I think there's also there's also a you know from a digital product um, point of view answer to how you build trust. I mean I think the the digital experience is one that is you know in the palm of your hand that is very tact can be made to feel very tactile, and depending on um, what we're able to do with your financial transaction data, the second that I can identify something that's genuinely helpful to you, you know, whether that is some of the things that are currently hidden in my settings sub-menu three in my First Direct app, setting manually up SMSs that tell me when I have an incoming payment, for example. You know, there are ways of recasting those things, like just, just answering simple questions like, have I been paid? I can answer that question, but I can also earn trust by uh, and make, you know, Tandem is all about giving you the feeling that you are, uh, that we are proactively trying to help your finances improve. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. And how does that manifest itself through the product? Um, You know, we will look at all of your financial transactions and where we can identify opportunities to be the customer advocate to save you money. We will proactively identify those things to you. And I think every time that a bank sends you one, one of those little things that makes you feel like, hey, they're actually trying to help me out, that's a very powerful mechanic for building trust. And it's something that I just have no experience of. I have experienced that in other verticals. You know, I know that there are games that make me feel like I want to buy microtransactions, you know, so my, but there's no analogy that I've got in financial services at yeah. all. But, but I guess that there's, a, there's something fundamental about banking there connected to the business model. Because when a retail bank is making 30% of their revenue from unauthorized overdraft fees or forex or you know crazy hidden transactions, and they've got a massive cost base of hundreds of branches, thousands of staff, aging legacy systems that cost billion, billions a year, actually kind of balancing that is is tough. So I guess that leads to the question of you know a good bank, a bank that's on my side, a bank that's going to be, protect me from that. How does it make money? Well, so so I think there's a really interesting quote, and I can't remember that it was one of the Valley VCs who famously said, like, I look for hundred billion dollar industries that I can turn into one billion dollar industries. I just invest in the company that owns the one billion dollars, uh-huh. right? I think there is a there is definitely an argument that a new kind of generation of banks might actually, by being customer advocate, make less money. But remember, our cost structure is completely different, right? And we're looking at the future in a very different way. And I think those businesses can be 10 times the size of one of the existing banks easily. Although it's interesting, I would say, unlike in some industries that I've been in in the past, 
I think price is not a very good mass adoption mechanism in banking because price is, is fairly invisible to customers, which is one of the problems and why the banks end up abusing. Uh, you know, people do not understand interest rates in the main and uh, interest rates actually when it comes down to it and you get into a bank interest calculation and, you know, uh, actual over 365 versus, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you actually uh, find it is, there is quite a bit of underlying complexity there. And therefore, I'm not sure that is a disruption mechanism. Now, that's not to say that that we won't make less money, less margin on a customer than a large bank is. We may well, but but clearly there is a massive core revenue driver in retail banking, which is net interest margin, the gap between saving and borrowing. And then when you come back to, in my book anyway, the honest business of banking, it's not overdraft fees, but it is taking money, in fact, me lending money to Nick without taking the credit risk that I know is inherent in lending money to Nick. Instead, I lend it to a third party who is guaranteed by the government, by the way, and then lends the money to Nick. That service with the government guarantee, which is what the bank license gets you, is a very valuable service. And, you know, if we all had to borrow and lend money between our friend groups, a, we wouldn't have any friends left, and B, you know, and B, it would it, it would be it would be a very traumatic process. So, I mean, I think there is a really useful role here for banks, and there's an honest business where there should be a delta between the margin, the, the interest paid, uh, and the interest received. And and I think that that risk premium uh, that the bank collects is is a perfectly fair way to make money. And I think the way that a bank should make money, you know, there's a 51 billion pound revenue pool in the UK, you know, Nick's probably right, but I actually think post-transformation, that's not going to be a 1 billion pound revenue pool. That's probably going to be a 35 billion pound revenue pool. There'll be a little bit of attrition on uh, on margins and hopefully some of those nasty fees will be out of the way. But ultimately, uh, there's still a fair business model in banking. And I don't think customers begrudge banks making money in a sensible way. I think it's just the bear trap banking, as you're kind of yeah. you know saying, it's yeah. the, you know, your, your back's turned and you get a fee that you weren't expecting and don't understand. You know, that's that's when it doesn't make sense. But actually, if you're providing a, uh, a win-win for the customer, I think everybody's, you know, everybody's good in that scenario, aren't they? Uh, I guess there's this interesting uh, point, though, at which some point in the future, there's a board meeting about, you know, driving revenues. And if they come from lending or if they come from affiliate fees of placing other prop financial products, there's obviously a rub there in terms of um, being a good bank and looking after customers. And at the other end, making money from lending or, or, or customers buying end products. Like how did... How do you think that that is there a balance there or how does that work? Yeah, I think there's two I think it's two different pieces. I mean, I think I think making money from lending is a really interesting one because that's pricing risk. And and I actually, you know, I think that there is a sort of fair market price for a level of risk and you can be better or worse at judging that risk. But again, I, I coming back to the customers, I don't think the customers begrudge, you know, if you're getting offered 28% by every other lender and Tandem offers you 26, it's still a good deal for you, you know, I mean, uh, or it may be actually that you're getting an amazingly good price because the other lenders have misjudged your credit and Tandem is only willing to offer you 29. We won't offer it to you. We'll say, go and go with those other providers. But, you know, because it's relative to personal credit risk, there is a, um, uh, there is a sort of clearing price there and you know we hope we'll be smarter on that stuff one of the advantages you have my co-founders of capital one you know matt cooper and clearly we have a lot of capital one dna which makes us you know reasonably effective on the credit and uh, credit assessment side of things 
However, I'm not sure um, that, but well, I think there are areas where you will be conflicting with the customer, you know, and, and there are areas where we will have to, you know, make decisions that are not necessarily profit maximizing along the way. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, particularly when I was business school, there's a lot of business school chat about, you know, you know, companies that are socially beneficial are always, you know, perform better in stock markets. There are, as you say, rubs where these things don't actually do sometimes conflict. But I would argue that the long-term value that we'll create by building a very different business that customers actually trust is going to be way higher than the, the margin we'll sacrifice in the short term. But there is an art form there, which is getting the right investors, getting the right board members who actually are willing to see that long-term play versus the short-term. Because it's definitely a long-term, short-term trade-off. There is no doubt that if we have you know, fair banking practices, one could flip those fair into unfair really quickly and make a lot of money in the short-term. And uh, depending who owns you, you, you can or can't prevent that. So you have a group of customer advocates or test customers that you're working with. You call them your co-founders, right? And and so have you learned anything from them on this piece around, you know, like balancing that? And what sort of insights are you getting that have surprised you? And also, is that driving the product? Because what interests me is that, you know, come in, you've got all of my data. Oh, how have you got all of my data? It's scary moments and, you know, all of these sorts of things that I can see customers reacting with. What have you found? Yeah. I mean, there's, certain, there's certainly through the co-founders. So the co-founders come in and do sort of product design uh, workshops with us. And there's all kinds of examples of um, things that we've found surprising, you know, things that we've, you know, that we've learned from them. And they will always be a valuable source of, in, of input. We have to be a little bit careful with co-founders because they are the bleeding edge early adopters. They might not represent, you know, the mass market right they might care about different things so when we're actually doing customer insight we we are quite careful to make sure that we're recruiting customers in a in a way that isn't all about co-founding money then comes back to exactly this point which is basically sort of well i'd say price versus hassle which is you know when we started we thought that this really was all about price and so we were concerned that you know there would be situations where you know, there was an external product that was cheaper than our product uh, that we couldn't get to that external price point. This will always happen. And, you know, while actually selling other people's products is great, you know, there may be, uh, there may be moments when, you know, we want to sell our own product. But actually, you know, what we found is that, first of all, no matter how hard I may want to, uh, we cannot integrate all third-party products to make them one-click seamless experiences. It's simply not possible with the organizations that sell those products. Therefore, we are always going to have, when it's a third-party product, an element of friction. That may be a big element or a small element. Only with our own products to date have we found ways that we can make it completely frictionless. And even when and we found some partners that can be relatively frictionless. So they have to be have good tech and have to work properly and they have to be willing to dedicate the engineering resource to actually solving the problems with you that you overcome in the process. So no but thanks then. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and well, no comment. And and and, uh, and and therefore, coming back to surprising insight, you know, I was very concerned that everyone was going to go price. Everyone goes convenience. Yeah, that's really true. The other thing, I mean, you alluded to it, we've talked to them a lot about is data. 
Um, so how do people feel about their data? How do they feel about you using their data? What do they find sneaky? What do they find useful? And the fact is that lines in different places for different people. So a lot of what we think about product design is what's the right place for us to start that line? And actually, how does a user change that for themselves? So how do they swipe notifications that they find creepy so they don't get them again? Because you're never going to get that right for every customer at once. It's just a totally different, different line. The other thing that we learned about data is when you say to people, who are you happy to share sensitive data with? They And we, I remember we did some great focus groups with people who didn't know we were a bank. They said, the government or a bank. Bizarrely, like it's that trust that you're not going to screw things up that comes with a bank. So, because there have been points in this where we thought, should we be a bank? Can we help people sort out their finances without being a bank? Actually, I think bank comes with security it comes with we're not going to lose your data we're going to treat it responsibly and people are right to have that opinion because the controls that we have around data i genuinely think are set a bar that you don't really see probably outside the military that actually is really helpful in being able to provide customers with a with a great experience as well they trust you that bit more from the start Alrighty, well that has been the tandem takeover thank you very much for for joining us is there anything else you want the uh, the listeners to know where can they find out more about tandem Absolutely. Well, definitely go to the Tandem website, tandem.co.uk, and uh, sign yourself up as a co-founder. You can join in early. We're currently offering 5% interest to our uh, early co-founders on savings accounts. It's pretty exciting. It's not going to happen for known co-founders, unfortunately. And uh, and get yourself over there and sign yourself up. My code is QK740. Uh, you'll need a code oh, to get in. We've got a leaderboard for, for those. Oh, that's so annoying. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you, guys. Yes. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.